1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley and this week we are at the Seaside. The Lib Dems are holding their autumn conference in Brighton and joining me in a quiet room at the back of the conference centre. I'm joined by James McGorry, former spin doctor for Nick Clegg, Lynn Featherstone, former Home Office Minister in the Coalition and now a Lib Dem peer, and Michael Savage, Chief Political Correspondent for the Times. So here we are. we the last day of the Lib Dem conference, and one of the most striking things is what can Tim Farron do to turn things around? There's a new poll out in the Evening Standard, which shows the party's still on 7%. Amazingly, 46% of people say they dislike Tim Farron. But for me, the most striking thing is that the poll ratings are exactly where the party was at the end of 2010, after tuition fees. Leaving government doesn't seem to have helped that. Coming out as the voice of the 48% of a pro-European doesn't seem to have helped that. So let's start with you, James. What
2: what do you think Tim Farron can do to turn that around? I still think he's introducing himself to uh, large ways of the public. And I think that is a big task of what he's got to do today. And also I think what he will do is go for an ambitious pitch for the centre ground, which is exactly what he should be doing because Corbyn's Labour Party are storming off to the left and eating each other alive. And Theresa May's leading a right-wing Conservative government. I think the more people will see of Tim Farron, the more they'll like him. And I certainly don't believe that when people have got used to him that 46% of people will dislike Tim Farron because he's basically undislikeable in my view. Lynn why do you think it is that the, the poll
1: ratings went down when you were in government and you were making difficult decisions and you, there was the tuition fees. But leaving government and getting a new leader doesn't appear to have changed that at all.
3: I think that because the Conservatives picked up a majority, which was um, a surprise, what you could see happen is that all the really good things. If you listen to David Cameron talking about his legacy, whether it was same-sex marriage or the raising of the tax threshold, liberal Democrat policies... Everything that people actually liked that was done was Liberal Democrat. Every, almost everything that people hated was Conservative. And yet the Conservatives got the benefit of that. So their poll ratings moved and ours didn't. So life isn't fair. And now we're fighting back.
1: But how, I suppose, is the question.
3: Well, I think... You know, if you're a Liberal Democrat, and the way politics is done in this country, because, you know, with the best will in the world, we have a polarizing media, a polarizing voting system. Uh, we have always had to work from the ground up. And we find that if you talk to people individually, most people are centrist. They actually are very reasonable and have pretty much the same world view. But the way we do politics has meant that they go to the right or the left. So we have to start from the ground up. And I think we take enormous heart, really, from gaining so many of the by-election seats compared to our uh, opponents if you like i mean labor has lost the tories have lost and we've gained i think 15 seats in by elections with humongous swings, enormous swings. So these are the first seedlings of growth, the green shoots of recovery. I you know, I don't think it's clutching at straws. I think it is genuine. And if you, you know, we're at conference at the moment. This is the highest number of people coming to our conference ever. 600 new members here. I mean, for a new member to come, that's kind of brave because you don't know <laughs> anyone. You don't know not to go to the glee club. You don't know where, where the good drinking holes are. No, but seriously, there is such a, a vote of confidence at the grassroots that we think, that obviously will build and build and build and feed through to the polls eventually.
1: Michael, what do you you make of that? Do you think there's anything, any sign that 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 will actually happen in practice?
4: It's a difficult question, this, for people around this table, professional politicians, party staff and journalists, because we all like to think political agency is incredibly important. In other words, there's political decisions you can take that can get you back in the game that mean you do better. But the story of the Lib Dems at the moment, at least, seems to be that Tim Farron has taken some pretty big decisions, not least on being very pro- pro-Europe after the EU referendum, and nothing has really changed. So it seems to be there's such a profound damage done to the Lib Dem brand after going into coalition and tuition fees and all that, that maybe it just is a long battle of time is as part of what's going to heal all this. And I think always with political recoveries, you need a bit of luck. And so it's going to take rebuilding at the base level, but also a by-election in the right area coming at the right time to help get the party back in the game. Then you get a bit of momentum, but you need luck and you need time. And and maybe there's not so much you can, Tim Farron can do, say at this conference, at a speech today to make a difference.
2: I think that's right. I mean, you get very limited opportunity as the third party to get national media cut through and what you're talking about are national poll ratings and I don't think it's much surprise that they've stayed fairly steady bumbling along six seven eight nine nine percent but what you can do is you get a by-election in the right area you keep winning these local council by-elections we win them off Labour we win them off the Tories we win them off UKIP we came from fourth to first in an area of Sheffield couple of weeks ago where we were not strong at all while Jeremy Corbyn's momentum crowd were f- um, phone canvassing in the pub uh, <laughs> Lib Dems were doing what well, That li-
1: sounds like my sort of phone
2: canvassing They were yeah, you would have liked the pub bit. I'm yeah, not yeah, sure yeah, you would have liked yeah, phone pub canvassing pub pub for Jeremy for Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn. Sort of
1: but James, you when you were Nick Clegg's spokesman for the entire time of the five years in coalition, you experienced the problem of trying to get cut through for what Nick was saying, even when he was deputy prime minister. I mean, that was a, that was an issue even for you then, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, although clearly less so. I mean, when you have the government machine okay. behind you and the deputy prime minister, you guys pays a bit more attention than when we've got AMPs MPs and Tim Farron's you know trying to trying to get that cut through. Telling Tim's personal story is going to be important. I think you'll hear a bit about it today. I don't know if you've seen the latest party political broadcast, is very heavily about about Tim Farron, because not a lot of people know him very well. And that is a challenge for any leader. I remember in 2008, people were asking, Nick who? You know, this is long before the days of Clegg Manning, and certainly long days before the days of the coalition government. That takes quite a long time. You know, if you're, if you're a party leader of a smaller party, regardless of which party it is, it's going to take a few years often for people to notice you, form an opinion of you, grow to like you, and then be prepared to vote for you in a national level election. So I think it is quite a a long road, but Tim's set out a clear path. And, you know, the next national test, I think, is most likely to be in 2020. So Tim's got quite a chance to... Build the brand. Come up with some other eye-catching policies. We've got Europe. I think you'll have some interesting things to say on the NHS today. Come up with a few others. Come up with the offer to the British people. And I think it's going to be a slow journey, but I think so far it's a positive start.
1: And then in terms of reaching out to particularly Labour voters, once the Jeremy Corbyn leadership thing is settled and it yeah. looks like he'll be there forever and ever... Um, <laughs> That will sort of make it easier for Tim to make the appeal to Labour vote. Once the, the Corbyn issue is settled, he's clearly not going anywhere. The yeah, Labour Party is and, not going and to change.
3: I, I've noticed um, a few tweets from this con- conference from lifelong Labour members who've joined the Liberal Democrats ahead of the debacle that is going on. <laughs> it's looming at the end of the week. Yeah, <laughs> um, there'll be more and more opportunities. Minds will be more open because if it, does, it is going to go Jeremy's way. For those moderates who may or may not be deselected, it's how on earth do you carry on in a party that no longer is anywhere near the party you thought you joined and you've got a, a party like the Liberal Democrats, which is pretty much where you are politically. So I think Tim will be making an open offer to those who want to come and talk.
1: And do you think they will?
3: In, I think I think they'll be hesitant. Numbers? I think yeah. they'll be hesitant in the beginning. I think there's a bit of a long way to go before there's an absolute acceptance that there's no X, no way out, or actually we have to find a way out because this is not the party we joined and therefore we need a home for the centrists. And I hope we see the rise of the centrists. I mean, I, because I think parties of the extreme are not the way to run the country because by, by the very definition, you're going to have the, half the country disagreeing with you automatically. And I think if you can make the appeal seemingly more attractive than we have managed to do thus far in the sense that you know being being able to see uh issues with a balanced view and a being developed human being and not saying i'm right you're wrong end of on the polarized ends of the political spectrum i think you can make it on passionate grounds about how important it is to retain that central ground and hold that center ground that that space, which is vast, that's opening up with Theresa May galloping off to the right, uh, will be filled by Liberal Democrats and anyone from Labour who who wants to join us.
4: I just wanted to pick up on that idea of defections, because it's a fascinating one. Um, On the face of it, it would seem quite appealing for Labour people to sign up to the Lib Dems, especially if they're having a tough time locally with hard-left activists. But I think it's worth saying, defections are also very problematic for the party who is sort of accepting those newcomers. Firstly, quite often locally, um, these are people who the local Lib Dems will have been fighting for years and passionately and very hard and there'll be a lot of sort of personal dislike going on so that makes it quite difficult for people to simply to adopt local Labour candidates and, and often they make a good headline at the time. But there's a reason people are in Labour and not in the Liberal Democrats and it's quite often an ideological difference that doesn't take that long to resurface uh, once they're in their new party. I
2: think people can get a bit carried away with um,
4: defections
2: as well as if that's the sort of be-all and end-all. You know, look at UKIP's conference. People went wild because a couple of people that nobody had ever heard of uh, defected from uh, (laughs) UKIP. And and only
1: one of them, Douglas Carswell, held his seat in the general election, but Mark Reckless lost it. Very short 15 minutes of fame for him.
2: And I know one of the things that Lib Dems want to do is, is obviously look, if people want to come and join us, please do you know i don't want to, I don't want to put off any labour defectors out there who <laughs> might be thinking about it. but I think one of the things that the Lib Dems are doing and want to do is work on a cross party. Basis. I think you know when you're talking about where our parliamentary strength is, it's with Lynn in the Lords, where you can do effective cross-party working. You know, we had Liz Kendall and Dan Poulter appear with Norman Lamb at this conference to talk about pretty significant reforms to to the health service on a cross-party basis. Lots of Paddy's got this more united outfit. There's a fantastic uh, outfit called Open Britain out there that, <laughs> that are building you a declared interest. Though, but uh, you I, are a director. I, I am the Britain, executive yeah. director of Open Britain. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, a group seeking to build like-minded pro-Europeans. Uh, who want to argue for a close relationship with Europe in even in the event we leave. But I think that's a big window for Lib Dems. Put ourselves on the same platform as moderate Conservatives, m- moderate Labour people, that will uh, show people that we're a centrist outfit, willing to build bridges with like-minded people from across the political spectrum.
1: And it's it interesting, I spoke to somebody uh, senior in the Lib Dem leadership, who said the problem with defections is if you have more than eight that becomes a <laughs> Labour takeover. The, 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 not having a massive block of Lib Dems already, you can't actually take many before it becomes just the Labour Party under a different uh, under a different banner.
3: Yeah, well, uh, there is a numerical challenge in, in the Commons <laughs> at the moment. But you know, I, I mean, I think I think James is right that there there will be a, a, an alliance of ideas. I think in terms of changing the the who actually forms your party as we've seen in the labor party you have to be really careful that the actual that there's a will to work together i mean in the original merger between social democrats and the liberal the liberals that was tough enough and it took a number of years before all those rifts were healed and able to go forward on a new prospectus to get to the point where obviously nowadays i joined when it was already the liberal democrats and that was already a very long time ago <laughs> but it you know these yeah, are very difficult challenges to, to yeah yeah
1: as you uh, as you raised uh, Europe, let's move on to that, James. So you uh, worked on the Britain Stronger in campaign, which is now merged into Open Britain. What's your take from your your campaigns group on the Lib Dem policy that, that Tim has said that there ought to be a second referendum on the deal, and there seems to be you know we've picked up disagreement here at the conference vince cable doesn't seem to be that impressed with the idea of a second but what's
2: your what's your sort of take on it wouldn't be conference unless vince cable took to the airwaves to disagree <laughs> with disagree disagree with the leadership in in some way and normally that that key monday morning slot that he did he did he become vince cable uh vince cable morning i think it's exactly the right things for, for the lib dems to be doing not everyone will agree with it it's not something open britain are arguing for for example but it's gone down very well. I mean, yes, there's some people who won't like it, but you can say that of every, of every policy. You know, What is the big driver that's put on tens of thousands of members in the Lib Dems since the referendum? It's got to be the bold position that Tim Farron took on Europe. Why is the mood in the hall here so chipper as the conversation we're having is, oh, we've only got eight MPs, it's a long way back. People are absolutely... Loving conference, you know, the poll was packed for the Europe debate yesterday. I only saw one person vote against it, and there was some tutting. I mean, that is that is as bad as it that gets, Lib Dems. It, uh, it really doesn't get. It was a loud tut as well. So I think it's exactly the right thing. And look, you're saying well, we are, you know, seven, eight, nine percent in the in the polls, which is where where we are. Forty eight percent of people who voted voted for Remain. And polls suggest that about half of those people wouldn't mind a second referendum. So by definition, on the biggest issue facing the country, you're already fishing in a much bigger electoral market than people are currently saying that they'd vote Lib Dem. It's an eye-catching policy. It's one that people can easily understand. It's one that people feel very, very strongly
4: about. So I don't see why, I don't see uh, any downside really to the, to the strategy that Tim's pursued. I totally understand why Tim Farron has made this big statement on Europe, partly to get back in the game and partly because he saw that, as James describes, big well of voters who were voted to stay in the EU. I just wanted to insert one word of caution. So I'm from Plymouth and the Southwest generally has voted quite heavily for Lib Dem. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once.
2: It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: Compared to other areas, it's also a very Eurosceptic place. And I think there's a sort of delicate balance. Uh, There's a sort of coalition of voters that the Lib Dems have always had. It's partly been metropolitan pro-European, but it's also been popular in those sort of regional areas like the West that are Eurosceptic. And my, my question is, are you actually abandoning that coalition? Are you waving goodbye to some Eurosceptic voters in the, Lib- uh, in the Southwest in order to capture, say, uh, some more voters in metropolitan areas it's not clear to me yet that it's just a a, a win win
2: i i think that's a very i think that's a very good point i've yet to see any evidence of you know lib dem voters people who either do vote for us now or would consider voting i've i've seen no polling evidence i've certainly seen no evidence here at conference not from people i speak to including people from the southwest where we have been traditionally strong that this is putting people off i'm not saying every single person will agree with it the, the market is there in the southwest. Lots of people did vote Remain, um, and in far greater numbers than people who voted Liberal Democrat last year. So even in those areas, I, I take your point. I think it will put some people off, but I think the net benefit is going to far counter those people in the West or elsewhere who might be who might be put off.
3: And I also think, as a, you know, a relentlessly pro-European party, it would be odd if we didn't carry on in that vein. And I think, you know, things are. Very uncertain at the moment. What would it be like if the deal that comes forward is so detrimental to both our economy and we can't stop immigration or whatever? Then I don't think you can offer just say because there was a vote there that uh, such a close vote as well that somehow that is set in stone and cannot be ever, you know, not a wind should blow on it, whatever the circumstances or the facts on the ground have changed. So I think it's absolutely right for a pro European party to be campaigning in that way and to be very honest and open about it because I think it will be a proof and pudding thing and if, if the actuality can't deliver what the leave voters thought they were getting then they may want to harden their vote and there may be a portion of them who want to come over and say no actually we had a better deal when we were actually in the European Union I've now decided I'd like to remain please, very much.
1: And You, you could have a situation where so the Lib Dems are in alliance with UKIP because you you could find that Lib Dems want a second referendum because you don't think the deal's good enough, and actually UKIP, you know, the, the, they're already trying to foster this sort of yeah they want the hard Brexit and this sort of sense of betrayal if the deal isn't what they thought it was going to be, and so the, the pressure for a, another referendum or to reject whatever deal it is that Theresa May gets could grow from both sides.
3: As I say, it's really indeterminate at this point because there's no substance on the ground for people to make any real judgments on. But as a pro-European party, as I say, it would be a very strange position if we just rolled over and died. And just said, at this fine, point we in time, it, we, we, take d- we take whatever comes. Yeah, that would yeah. be a dereliction of our own duty.
1: Well, let's let's move on to Theresa May and uh, the way she operates. Lynn, you spent...
3: I did, three years three in years the Home Office. Three years in the Home
1: Office with her. Yes. So, And it would be really interesting, her sort of well meteoric rise to uh you know all happened so quickly when she became prime minister and one of the most striking things was that everyone the the first reaction was that nobody really knew a huge amount about her didn't know really how she operated or what she thought about anything so you've you've been what's your yes
3: i was i had sudden cachet the media was suddenly (laughs) interested in me having spent three years with theresa well you kind of what you see is what you get she's very self-contained she's not really interested that much in the media unless they're there to carry what she wants to put forward. She's you know, she's not going to run to the media with every headline. She's not terribly bothered about whether she's popular with the conservatives or not, other than she needs... I mean, we'll go on to the grammar schools in a minute. I found her... I mean, I think the Tories were very lucky that she was there, I think, with this sort of debacle that was going on with Gove and Boris and Andrea Leadsom. She was this very cool, safe pair of hands... And she's very considered, and she has a a sort of somewhat headmistressy, but sort (laughs) of a certain manner that makes you feel that nanny's in charge and everything will be all right. However, you know, during my time at the Home Office, obviously without her backing, I wouldn't have um, been able to get same-sex marriage on the agenda and uh, supported. So she can be socially liberal, um, but she is very, very, very conservative at times, and um, she had some issues at the Home Office, you know, that, that prisoners' votes. She was incandescent about civil liberties, not her strong point, in my view. So I think what you're seeing with grammar scores is very much like the, sort of in a way, the go home van. She suddenly does something because it's, she thinks it's right at the time. I've no doubt she acts on principle, or what she believes is principle, mixed with a little bit of politics <laughs> on the right because her majority is so small and possibly the influence of her chief of staff. But she makes, you know, not very, uh, my, my message to her was, if you can pull your party and what you're doing in the country onto the center ground, you will be probably in government for a very long time. If you veer very sharply to the right, then you'll get the counter-reaction on the left. And then things are much more uncertain. And at the moment, she looks like she is veering to the right. But, you know, in private, She's very um, humorous, kind, and a very nice person to work with. And I think my colleagues were always shocked that I got on so well with her, (laughs) given that uh, Norman Baker, who was one of my successors, flounced out of the uh, Home Office saying he couldn't work with Teresa, and she was like wading through mud. But I think when you're in coalition, you have two ways of working with people. You either prove to them that you're able and prove the case, and that is something I'll say for Teresa. I remember making a case at a point where same-sex marriage nearly fell because of some advice we'd had that we would be in breach of the Equality Act. And there was me versus 15 conservatives, and they were arguing for same-sex marriage to be dropped. This was an emergency roundtable that we held. And she took my argument. Because it was logical and obviously I was right, (laughs) apart from anything else. But what I'm saying, she will use her own judgment and she will be evidence-based. And that was why I was so surprised by what I regard as a very inept move on grammar schools. She didn't need that trouble. I mean, I know she needs the right wing of a party, but I think it was a very retrogressive step and not evidence-based. So I was surprised at her because I thought she was more sensible.
1: Where, where do you think that's coming from, Michael, The the because there does seem to be this contradiction between her support for gay marriage and her words outside number 10 talking about standing up for the privileged few and helping people get, and then suddenly there's this, out of nowhere, her first big domestic policy away aside from Brexit is grammar schools, which seems like a real move, shift backwards.
4: Yeah, but actually when you uh, look back at her past career, Um, Before she went into government, Uh, I'm told actually some of her very early interventions in the Commons were on uh, pro selection. In, in education. So actually, it could be something that she's just always believed, but as a, a loyal lieutenant of David Cameron, she knew to be quiet about it when he clearly didn't support it. And now she's in charge, it's perhaps one of the things she really believes in. And of course, it's something that her very influential chief of staff, uh, Nick Timothy, believes in too, and that's come to the fore. So, so first of all, it could be personal belief. And secondly, there is some sort of party management going on. But I uh, totally agree with Lynn that it's problematic because she could very well end up losing a lot of sort of moderate conservatives on this and just end up with the same situation of not having a majority to push it through.
2: I I agree entirely with Michael. I I don't think, and Lynn, I don't think it should be any surprise. Theresa May is quite a conservative, you know, in in demeanour, in outlook. Yes, she has some socially liberal views on some stuff. Um, gay marriage is the best example, but she's also done some really good liberal work on things like, uh, anti human trafficking when she was in the, in the home office. She's got a really credible record on, on a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. But in most of her other world outlook, I don't pretend to know her at all, but it seems to me she is really quite small C conservative and the conservatives. Biz- it sounds like a bizarre thing to say, they've actually gone through a slightly rough time. They've just got rid of their prime minister. They've split quite heavily over Europe. they now have a bit of a panic about what to do, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, or what does Brexit, Brexit means Brexit, but what does Brexit, Brexit mean? And I think it was quite a brave decision to throw the Conservative Party a policy that many in the party, not just in Westminster, but the Tory grassroots, have hankered after for decades. You know, that is quite a big statement, The problem when you make big, brave statements like that is they do tend to cause you problems down the road. And with a working majority of around about 12, I think this is going to be a real problem for her when she's already going to have some pinch points, not least on Brexit, within her own party management management structure. But I tell you what I also think it shows is that if you're prepared to take a brave decision like that, that you know is going to divide parts of your party you know it's going to get the heckles of your opposition um, and you know it's going to be the domestic issue for the for the for the for the foreseeable future and yet you still do it even when you've got everything else on your plate i think it shows the contempt with which she holds jeremy corbyn's (laughs) <laughs> Labour Party. In. She, she she thinks she can, do anything, she thinks though. she can do whatever she likes, dis- even if there's huge internal opposition, because the Labour Party are in such a dire state that there is no real practical official opposition to what she's doing. So I think it was quite brave, but at the same time, it's exactly what I would have done. While your oppositions. Um, in a mess, make hate And there, is, there does seem to be this sense that at the moment The Tory
1: party seems united Because with the exception of grammar schools Basically nothing's happened mm-hmm. Brexit means Brexit, as everybody knows, doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. And it's just a sort of holding it's a, it's a holding <laughs> statement While she tries to work out what it means But once we start getting a bit of flesh on those bones That's where the problems will start And that we know that half the Tory party Back to in the, Of uh, MPs in the Commons Um and so they're going to have a totally different view to what Brexit should mean. Yeah, than it's
3: going to get much tougher for her. Much, much tougher.
1: Well, before we um, wind up, let's just touch on uh, Lib Dem Conference. It's the last day of the conference. Everyone's sort of, lots of people looking bleary-eyed because of the awfulness of Glee Club uh, that happened around. Lynn, explain to people who don't know what Glee Club is.
3: It, well, I mean, I, I went there once uh, several <laughs> years ago and never went back. Um, it's basically... Liberal Democrats who've probably had a little bit of alcohol Writing words, (laughs) different words, to familiar tunes Is the best way I can put that And the great and good of the party make complete idiots of themselves generally and everyone has a great time, and nobody gets in the hall for nine o'clock the next morning.
2: I mean, if you've never been and you are at Lib Dem Conference, well, you can't do it this year, you've missed it, but if you are at Lib Dem Conference next year and you've never been, uh, do go. I mean, it it, it has to be seen you know, to I've be believed. I've been coming to these things for 10 years, and I've never been to Glee Club. I can't believe you've never come with me. No, uh, I've never been. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, why?
1: I've seen. Well, you can now see because thanks to Twitter and social media, you can now see the awfulness of Simon Hughes singing the words Simon Hughes to the tune of Postman Pat. Bit,
4: What's not to like? I'm a bit disappointed by that because it's a bit like letting light in on magic, isn't it? mean you know, show these things on Twitter. You've really got to go
2: to experience it. It's not going to come across the same on on, on Twitter as the magic of the room. Michael's the, absolutely right. It is,
1: it, and there, there were songs about why doesn't Tony Blair f off and die? That is a very popular one. Yeah, it's a very. That, that people seem to enjoy um, enjoying singing that
4: one wait, wait. it's nice because I don't think the other parties do it's very
3: irreverent
4: it's, ve- it's very you Lib know. Dem that's yeah, what it's it is very yeah, up, yeah very Lib Dem although open. I think the Tony Blair song might take off at Labour Conference <laughs> bearing uh, in mind the sort of uh, momentum takeover going on there I'd so, the
2: so uh, there maybe go. it'll catch on Glee Club uh, songbooks are available from the Liberator magazine priced at £5 pounds. you
3: know you were talking about why we we're dribbling along in the polls and why people don't recognise our wonderfulness but actually, there's quite a lot of people here who have come and have had a really good time and, and, and don't feel what, what what is out there at the moment. They, they actually get it. And we're just hoping to spread the love.
1: The the ability of the Lib Dems to carry on smiling in the face know, of everything is I extraordinary. Know. It was striking throughout the entire time in coalitions. No how bad, and we always came. To Lib Dem conference, predicting all-out war, and instead you all got on famously.
3: But there's also, Matt, you in in the media come and you tell us privately that actually going to the three conferences, this is the most relaxed, this is the most open, this is the most sometimes enjoyable as opposed to the atmospheres of the other parties that's
1: true I think the the, the atmosphere at the Labour conference next week is oh going God. to be quite <laughs> something It'll Be tin hats on I think uh, just <laughs> to even get in the building uh, well that's all we've got time for uh, this week next week we'll be in Liverpool at the Labour party conference seeing just who might be the new Labour leader for now though you can tweet us at Times Red Box or find us on Facebook where you can also like our page and be in with a chance of winning a Jeremy Corbyn clings on obviously red box mug Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device so it gets delivered to your phone every week. And you can sign up to my morning political email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, from James, from Lynn, from Michael and me, it's goodbye.
4: Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.